This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 1. Today we are beginning a brand new series that I'm calling Life in the Spirit. After the resurrection, the next big thing was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes when we get past Easter, we, we don't hear much about the Spirit. But in the Bible, that's not the way it happened. In the Bible, Jesus promised that the Spirit was going to come... And the Spirit came, and the Spirit empowered the early church, and the Spirit is to be at the heart of our church and the heart of our lives. And so today, we're going to begin this series, and what we're going to be doing this spring and summer is we're going to be looking at some of the primary texts in the New Testament that teach about life in the Spirit. And today we're going to kind of lay a foundation for our series. And we're going to talk about the fact that the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so today we're going to lay a foundation by seeing that the Holy Spirit is part of the triune God. The Holy Spirit is God. And so it's going to be a little bit different in that Typically, um, we're walking carefully verse by verse through a text, and we're going to do some of that today as well. But I I want us to see kind of a little more broadly just the the doctrine of the Trinity today and, and talk about really the difference that that makes in our life. We're going to talk about how understanding the Trinity can change your life. And so we're going to look at a great Trinitarian text here in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to begin with verse 4. This is at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. So right at the beginning of his ministry, there is this huge emphasis on the Holy Spirit. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water. But He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, With you, I am well pleased. So, Father, we pray that you would bless our time in your word today, and we pray that you would bless, by the power of your Spirit, this series. We desire to live 
lives that are lived in the fullness of your spirit. Lives that are empowered and guided by your spirit. Fruitful lives. And we know that you have given the Holy Spirit to all believers. But Father, we desire to appropriate the, full, the fullness of the Spirit, that, that, that the Holy Spirit would, would be working in and through our lives every day in order that we would live lives that would honor and glorify Christ. So, would your Spirit open the eyes of our hearts now to see you, to see the God who created us, the God who serves as the model for all of the relationships in our lives and the God who invites us to experience the love that has been happening within the Trinity from before the foundation of the world. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, our family was coming back from South Carolina and so we pulled off 95. I made the executive decision. We're going we're gonna to pull off. It was not a popular decision with uh, the younger members of our family, but nevertheless, the decision was made and, uh, because I wanted my kids to see my college campus. And so we weren't thrilled about losing the time, but hey, we were going to do it. So I wanted them to see where dad went to school. And so we pulled off and we pulled into my little college town and so I showed them, okay, this is where I went to classes and everything and uh, the different parts of campus. And this is my, the dorm that I stayed in. And so we even pulled into the parking lot and I said, hey, this is where I used to park and everything. Um, and it was fascinating for me to, to reminisce like that. But it brought back a great memory, a funny memory um, to me about that parking lot outside of my dorm. I think it was my freshman year. And so I go out to the parking lot, turn the key in the ignition, and the car just kind of sputters, and it's not going anywhere. And so I call my dad back here, and I'm like, hey, you know, something terrible has gone wrong, you know, with the car. And so he's like, okay, I'll handle it. So he made some calls, and uh, he called me back in a little while. He said, son, I want you to get some of your buddies, and I want you to push your car over to Roy Lee's Shell, which was a service station right, right on the edge of, of campus. And so... We push it over to Roy Lee's, and, uh, and so I, I leave it over there. And, you know, I hadn't been gone long at all. I had just practically just gotten back to the dorm, and I'm getting a call from Roy Lee. He says, you can come get your car. And so I'm like, well, man, that was quick. So I, I, I walk back over to Roy Lee's, and I, now I want you to picture this, okay? Uh, I'm this fresh-faced, probably about 18-year-old kid at that point, Roy Lee looked like, he looked like he was a member of the Hells Angels, okay? In fact, he might have been a member of the Hells Angels. Uh, he's, got, he's got a beard, you know, coming down to his navel. He's all tatted up, you know, on, on, uh, on both arms. And, and he's, he's leering at me. And, uh, and, and the look on his face was like, he's looking at me like, you pathetic kid. And I said, what's wrong with it? And I'll never, I can see this like it was yesterday. He looks back at me and he says, you might try putting gas in it once in a while. It's really an essential thing for a car to run, you know, is gas. And, and the Holy Spirit is essential for Christians to run. But sometimes 
to hear a lot of Christians talk, you know, you would think that the Christian life is a matter of just getting saved and getting on with it. Get on with it in your own strength. When you read the Bible, that's not what you see. In fact, as I've studied the New Testament through the years, the biggest disconnect that I have seen between what I'm reading in the pages of the New Testament and what I see in the modern church, and I'm not just talking about our church, I'm talking about modern Christianity in general, the biggest disconnect that I see is that in Scripture, in the New Testament, among the early Christians, there was just this incredible emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And I don't hear as much emphasis on the Holy Spirit in the modern church, and sometimes when I do hear an emphasis on it in certain contexts, I see things happening that would, I think, tend more to grieve the Spirit, really, than honor the Spirit. What, what we need is, is a biblical view of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. Now, I'm not the only one who has noticed the lack of emphasis on the Holy Spirit and how different that is from the New Testament. A few years ago, the Christian writer Francis Chan wrote a book he entitled Forgotten God, reversing our tragic neglect of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to do that. We, we don't want to neglect the third person of the Trinity. So, when you read the New Testament, I mean, what do you see there? First of all, in the Gospels, in the teaching of Jesus... You see this huge emphasis on the Holy Spirit. You see it here right at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. But, but then Jesus devotes whole chunks of teaching to the Holy Spirit, particularly in the Gospel of John. The night before Jesus goes to the cross, as we read about His teaching from John 13 through 17. I mean, Jesus that night could have taught about anything He wanted to teach on. But Jesus that night devoted a, a huge part of his teaching to the fact that the Spirit was coming, the Counselor, the Comforter, the Helper. Jesus says He's coming. In fact, Jesus said, it's good for you that I'm going away because if I don't go away, the Spirit's not going to come. And then, after His resurrection, Jesus says, I want you to wait here in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power. Spirit's coming. And then in Acts, He comes. We see that in Acts 1 and 2. The Spirit is poured out. And then for the remainder of the book of Acts, we see the results of that in an empowered church. In fact, many people have suggested that the book of Acts is more appropriately titled, instead of the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And then in the Epistles, and especially Paul's letters, I mean, we see that the Holy Spirit is just not an optional add-on to the Christian life, but like, like just a central part of our life as individual believers and our life together as a church. And so, you know, I was really convicted that this year I wanted this post-Easter series to be about 
the next thing that happened after the resurrection, and that is the pouring out of the Spirit. What does that mean for us? What does it mean to live life in the fullness of the Holy Spirit? What difference does the Holy Spirit make as we seek to live holy lives? Fruitful lives. Guided lives. Empowered lives. Now, we begin today by seeing that the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity. We do not worship three gods who work together. We do not worship one God who sometimes takes one form and sometimes takes another form. We worship one God in three persons, and those three persons know one another, love one another, exalt one another, and they have been doing this throughout all eternity. Now we can see that in our texts today. We, we see it in verses 9 through 11. The Bible says that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth, so the Son is coming, it's coming to be baptized. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So in the space of three verses... We see all three persons of the Trinity, don't we? The Son comes to be baptized at the beginning of His ministry. The Spirit envelops Him with power. And the Father envelops Him with words of love. Now C.S. Lewis had a way of putting things. And Lewis in his classic book, Mere Christianity, sees the activity of the three persons of the Trinity as sort of like a dance. Lewis says, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Now, I think it's going to become clear to you as we go through this this morning why Lewis uses that imagery of the Trinity as being like a dance. And, and I, I'm going to use it because I think it's, it's going to be helpful in making this down-to-earth and practical. Many, many times when I hear theologians talk about the Trinity, man, my eyes just glaze over. I mean, because my, my mental circuits are breaking and they're talking in very abstract theoretical terms and you just wonder, okay, what, what difference does it make that God is Trinity to my life? I, I, I think that understanding the Trinity should be life-changing. Life-changing. And I think we're going to see this today as we walk through. So, first of all, there is a dance. Now, <clears throat> I remember a few events that I went to when I was growing up that were called dances... But they weren't much of a dance, okay? 
um, particularly in junior high. Now, I know none of our junior high students are like this, okay? So just, I'm excluding you, okay? Talking about when I was growing up, it was like this, okay? But at certain junior high dances, it was called a junior high dance. It wasn't much of a dance because the boys sat on one side of the room in their metal folding chairs against the wall, and the girls sat on the other side of the room in their metal folding chairs against the wall, and the music played, and the dance floor was empty. Not much of a dance. Well, imagine this. Suppose one of the boys got up, and he asked a girl to dance, and the guy just stands still. I've seen a few guys who danced kind of like that, but... Okay, not really the point in dancing. In dancing, two people are supposed to be moving, all right? Not one person standing still and another orbiting around him. No, two people moving. Now, in the Trinity, all three persons are moving. One person is not standing still and saying, you revolve around me. All three persons in the Trinity are active. We see that in verses 9 through 11, right? Jesus is coming. The Son comes. The Spirit descends upon Him, envelops Him with power. The Father speaks from heaven. He envelops Him with words of love. This activity, this movement, is what's been happening within the Trinity for all eternity. What if you met somebody and you love them so much that, I mean, you just you spend your time thinking about ways that you can please them. Ways that you can honor them. I mean, you just, you love loving them. You love honoring them. And then imagine that you found out that that person feels the same way about you. Okay? That's what's been happening within the, the persons of the Trinity from before the foundation of the world. Now, if you were created by a God like that, that has life-changing implications. First of all, it means that you were created for relationships. Now listen, if there is no God, then relationships are nothing but a coping mechanism to help us survive and continue to evolve better. Love is meaningless. Relationships are meaningless. People are doing nothing more than just using one another to get along better and survive better um, and just it continues our evolution. But if there is a God and if this God is a trinity and if this God is all about relationships within the trinity, relationships of love within the trinity, what that means is that built into the very fabric of our lives is the fact that we were made for relationships. Rich, deep relationships. That doesn't mean that it's God's will for everybody to be married. 1 Corinthians 7 makes it very clear that one of the highest callings in the Christian life is to singleness. Um, But whether you're single or married, all of us are created for relationships. Deep, rich relationships. If you are designed for marriage, then one of those 
deep, rich friendships is to be, obviously, uh, with your spouse. And usually within marriage, uh, there are children that are going to be involved. And that's another rich, deep relationship. But all of us, single or married, whether we have children or not, we are all designed for deep, rich relationships, friendships. Now, we live in a culture where relationships are fine as long as they don't get in the way of other things, like achievement, okay, or, um, you know, making money, or getting where we want to go in terms of our personal goals. But I'm telling you, if you put any of those things above relationships with people, you're going to miss the point of life. You're going to waste your life. Because you were created for relationships. Second, you were created for self-giving, loving relationships. Because again, you were created in what? In the image of God. What is God like? God is a trinity, and within the trinity... God has been about loving, self-giving relationships from before the foundation of the world. This is who He is. And you were made in His image. And that means that you were designed for not just relationships, but relationships that are loving, relationships that are self-giving. Cornelius Plantinga says this, the persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. Each person envelops and encircles the others. We see that in verses 9 through 11, right? And you see it throughout the, the Bible. All three persons of the Trinity uh, loving one another you know, deferring to one another, communing with one another, uh, putting the others first, exalting the others, honoring the others. Let's go back to the junior high dance. It's not a dance because no one approaches the other, but in the Trinity, all three persons have been approaching one another throughout all eternity. They all three of them have been putting the other the others first, exalting the others, honoring the others. No one person of the Trinity is saying, "You revolve around me." They're all self-giving and loving. Now, this is our model for relationships. This is to be our model for friendship. We we need to recapture the concept of friendship, especially in our, in our context in America. This is something that has been so lost, I think, in our culture. But, you know, um, men need, even if you're married, you know, men need deep, rich friendships with other men to flourish as they really should. Women need rich, deep friendships with other women to flourish um, and to grow deeply as Christians. I mean, we, we desperately need that. We need to recapture that, that, that concept of friendship. But listen, the model of friendship 
is the way that the members of the Trinity relate to each other. That's the, our model for marriage. No one member of the Trinity says, you revolve around me. What happens in marriage if you have two people in a marriage and both people are saying, you revolve around me? Not a happy marriage. What happens in marriage when you have two people who are putting, seeking to put the other person first? You know, you've got two people who are seeking to defer to the other person, two people who are seeking to honor the other person and serve the other person above themselves. You know, you've got two happy people. You know, what about, what about in the workplace? What about on teams? You know, what, about when you, when you've, what happens when you have a bunch of people who have their own agenda um, and they're out for their own personal glory, their own personal advancement, you know, they're out for their own personal stats. You've got a dysfunctional team, an unhappy team. What happens on a team, whether it's in the workplace or on the athletic field, when nobody cares who gets the credit? You know, in fact, everybody's just got a common goal. Everybody's there to support one another, in fact, putting other people uh, first, even above, above themselves, any personal desire for glory on their part, you know, you've, got, you've got a happy, healthy team. What about in the church? The church above all, <laughs> as the family of God, in, in the church relationships are to be modeled on the, the way that the members of the Trinity relate to one another. So, Paul says things like this in his letters, like in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's what the members of the Trinity are constantly doing for one another. They're, they're putting the other forward, seeking to honor the other above themselves. Do you see how relationships are meant to be modeled after the God who made us, the triune God? And this is so practical. There is a dance. Second, God invites you to join the dance. Now, <clears throat> we have seen who God is. It's triune. We've seen that the three persons of the Trinity, okay, are constantly supporting one another, loving one another. But here's something that's mind-blowing. God invites you and me to experience the love that the members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, have been experiencing in their relationship throughout all eternity. The night before Jesus goes to the cross in his high priestly prayer in John 17, this is when Jesus prays for us. He's praying for believers in the future. He's praying for you and me. That high priestly prayer really reaches a crescendo at the end of chapter 17 when Jesus prays this for us. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Now look at this. Look at this purpose clause. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. You understand what Jesus is praying for us? He is praying that we would come to experience the love that has been there throughout all eternity, from before the foundation of the world, the love that the Father and the Son have for one another. Jesus is praying that we would experience that, that we would be brought into that. And then who assures us of that love? The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. God is inviting us to join the dance. Now, something had to happen for us to be able to join it. Because God is holy, as we sung earlier. We are sinners. There was a brokenness, an estrangement, a separation between us and God. It was not that way from the beginning. God made a world in which we were in perfect relationship with God. We were in harmony with God. The relationship with God and with others was perfect. But what happens? Sin enters the world. We become separated from God. We're estranged from God. Relationships among human beings just unravel. Okay, and God's original creation, which is perfect, is just marred. Now, rather than allow us to wallow in that and stumble around in the darkness, what does God do? In love, God gives His Son. So here in the first chapter of Mark, we see that the Son is coming on the scene. Now, what's happening here? As Jesus comes on the scene, and He's beginning His ministry here, what's happening? God is beginning to bring about a new creation. God is remaking the world in Jesus. And so, in this text, Mark very intentionally goes back to the very beginning of creation. We're going to see that in just a moment. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 again. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. Now, a couple of things here that are really clear in Greek. And that is that the Spirit doesn't just descend on Him, but literally into Him. Filling Him, empowering Him for ministry. And the Spirit descends not as a dove, but like a dove. The point is that the Spirit doesn't swoop down like a hawk or a falcon. The, the Spirit sort of it flutters down on and into Jesus. Okay, like a dove. Now... Here's what's happening. This imagery, okay, is drawn from the creation story. It's drawn from Genesis chapter 1. Let's look at it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That Hebrew word there that's translated as hovering, it can be also translated as fluttered. In fact, in the Targum, which was the Old Testament, the Jews read in the first century. You know how it was translated? It was translated that the Spirit of God was fluttering over the face of the waters like a dove. Mark here is going back to that original creation where the Spirit is fluttering over the face of the waters like a dove. Now, what happens right after this in verse 3, in Genesis 1-3? God says, let there be light. And there was light. You see, in the original creation, God speaks light into the darkness. He lights up the dark. But then what happens? Sin enters the world and the world is enveloped in another kind of darkness. The darkness of sin. Now, Jesus is coming on the scene. God is making a new creation and Jesus is going to light up the dark. That's what's going on here. Now, how is Jesus going to do that? How is Jesus going to, to, to light up the dark? We get a hint of it in Verse 12, immediately after the baptism, what happens? The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Now, this signals that the, the, light, the ministry of Jesus is going to be hard. That he is going to be facing hostility, hardness produced by our sin. Yes, it does mean that, but... When first century Jews heard this language, they would have heard even more than that. When they heard this verse, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. What would have come to mind was the book of Leviticus, where the sins of Israel were symbolically placed upon an animal called the scapegoat. That's where we get the term. So the priest would lay his hands on the head of this, this goat and symbolically all of the sins of the people would be transferred to this animal. And then they would put the animal out of the city and drive the animal out into the wilderness to die. To die for the sins of the people. What's going to happen to Jesus? Our sins are going to be transferred to Jesus, not symbolically, but literally. And Jesus is going to be driven outside of the city, outside the gates of Jerusalem, to die. See, God is going to light up the dark because all of that darkness is going to converge on Jesus on the cross. It's all going to converge on Him. That's why we can be made new. That's why darkness has vanished now, okay? Because, because Jesus took it 
Jesus allows all of our darkness, all of our sin to converge on Him. What was God getting out of the cross? You say, well, you know, He was getting followers. He was getting people who would love Him. He already had that. He's ha- he had that for all eternity within the Trinity. It was just pure love. And pure love. Jesus allows all of that darkness, our darkness, to converge upon Him on the cross. Now, Tim Keller points out that on the cross, God is moving toward us. In the cross, God moves towards you. And He says, shall we dance? We can then move toward God. How? In repentance and faith. Okay, by turning from our sin, trying to do life our own way apart from God, turning to Jesus and trusting in Him alone, relying on His finished work for us, welcoming Him into our lives. So God moves towards us and the cross and the resurrection. We move toward God in repentance and in faith. And then God moves toward us yet again by justifying us, making us right with Himself, adopting us as His own sons and daughters. Listen, when God, when God justifies you, what's happening? He's making you right. Okay, He's pronouncing you not guilty but righteous because what? Because the perfect record of Jesus is credited to you. And so when God justifies us, He is able to say, I, comple- I love you, I completely accept you. You are totally accepted based not on your record but on the perfect record of my Son. And He adopts us as His own. And listen, the words, the words that the Father speaks to the Son, He speaks over you if you're in Christ. In verse 11, a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. If you are a child of God, the Father speaks those words of love over you. Says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. You're my child. I love you. I, you are, I accept you totally because of the perfect record of Christ. Now, when we get that, when we get that glorious good news, when we get the gospel, I mean, how do we, what does that make us want to do? Love Him back? Obey Him? Because we love Him. See, again, we're, mo- we're moving toward God again. And then, who assures us of the fact that we are children of God? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Paul says, in Romans 8:16 the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do you see how we are invited into all of this? <laughs> it's amazing. This is beautiful. And this is the journey that we're going to be going on in these next few months together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word which tells us who you are. <laughs> We, we thank you that 
we have a model for relationships within who you are, within the Trinity. And we thank you even beyond that, that you invite us to experience the love that you have been experiencing within the Trinity from before the foundation of the world. We thank you that through the gospel, through the work of Christ, that you have made a way for us to enter in, that Jesus is the way into this dance. And Father, I pray for anyone today who's never responded to that invitation, that you would open the eyes of their heart to see Jesus, to trust Him, to turn to Him. Pray for those of us who have turned to Christ, that that our lives would be characterized, and that the relationships in our lives would be characterized by what we see. all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about a relationship with Him, you want to talk with someone or know more about Christ and experiencing His love, um, I'm going to be here at the front and I'll be here afterwards as well and other people will. We would love just to talk with you and minister to you uh, however we can. Um, if you're here and uh, you'd like to be a part of this church family, we would love to come alongside and just help you um, in that uh, process and If you're here today, you just need prayer. Uh, There are people here who would love to pray with you. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through His Word, through prayer, and through His people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.